Deuteronomy chapter 14, and we are going to read together verses 1 through 21. So we won't preach through the entire chapter this morning. Deuteronomy 14, verses 1 through 21, and because this is the word of God and you are the people of God, if you are able, would you please stand? Deuteronomy 14, beginning in verse 1, Moses writes as he is carried along by God's spirit. You are the sons of the Lord, your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any boldness on your foreheads for the dead. For you are a people holy to the Lord, your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You shall not eat any abomination. These are the animals you may eat. The ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roebuck, the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. Every animal that parts the hoof and has the hoof cloven in two and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Yet of those that chew the cud or have the hoof cloven, you shall not eat these, the camel, the hare, and the rock badger, because they chew the cud but do not part the hoof, are unclean for you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof but does not chew the cud, it is unclean for you. Their flesh you shall not eat and their carcasses you shall not touch. Of all that are in the waters, you may eat these. Whatever has fins and scales, you may eat. And whatever does not have fins and scales, you shall not eat. It is unclean for you. You may eat all clean birds. These are the ones that you shall not eat. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the nighthawk, seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl, the short-eared owl, the barn owl, the tawny owl, the carrion vulture, and the cormorant, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hoopoe, and the bat, and all winged insects are unclean for you. They shall not be eaten. All clean winged things you may eat. You shall not eat anything that has died naturally, You may give it to the sojourner who is within your towns that he may eat it. Or you may sell it to a foreigner for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Church family, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. The very first Bible that I learned to read, I learned to study, I learned to memorize was the English translation known as the King James Version, affectionately known as the King Jameth Version. While other English translations were popular at the time, I worshiped in a church that esteemed the KJV. And I don't recall actually it being a church necessarily that by conviction was KJV. In other words, demanded that the English translation be a KJV. I just remember it being a church where the KJV was the prominent translation. 
So for this reason, as I learned to read the text and as I learned to memorize the text, and I, not having come from a Christian background, the KJV really began to inform me. And some of the passages that I memorized early on in my Christian life bear the indelible imprint of the translational decisions and the manuscripts that were used by the KJV translators. It's still common today when I'm quoting a passage that perhaps I've memorized in the English Standard Version and I offer some kind of hybrid when I quote the passage between the English Standard Version and the KJV. One of the first passages that I recall memorizing early on as a follower of Jesus Christ was 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. I was handed these little cards to begin memorizing scripture. I'm actually very thankful that early on in my Christian life, I was taught the value of hiding God's word in my heart in the way of memorization. Well, in the English Standard Version, the text reads, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. But I memorized this verse in the King James Version. And again, there's a kind of hybrid that happens if I just try to do this extemporaneously. But in the King James Version, it says, but ye, of course, ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, different use of the indefinite there, and holy nation, a peculiar people. Any of you memorized the King James Version, 1 Peter 2 verse 9? A peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Early in my Christian journey, as I reflected on this this past week, early in my Christian journey, I learned something about Christianity. I learned that Christians were weird. That's what peculiar means. Right? So I memorized this text, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, in the King James, and I was taught, I was catechized early on as a follower of Jesus Christ, that following Jesus Christ meant being otherworldly meant being countercultural, meant being peculiar, meant being at times just plain odd. In fact, I seem to recall remembering someone say something along these lines. The definition of peculiar in this text is odd. It is weird. And so from that moment on, it's, it's left this indelible imprint on my own soul and on what I expect as a follower of Jesus Christ. It doesn't surprise me when Christians are odd. What surprises me is when Christians are normal. That surprises me. Because I recognize as a young follower of Jesus Christ that following Christ meant walking a different path than the path I had been walking up until that point. Following Jesus Christ meant walking a different path than others were walking who did not know and treasure Jesus Christ. And as a result, following the path of Christ meant in some ways standing out in particular areas. Well, Deuteronomy chapter 14, here's why I mention all of this. Deuteronomy 14 verses one through 21 is a description of this peculiar path. That's what this text is about. 
Upon a cursory glance, if we just glanced at this thing, we may be tempted to believe that the text is fundamentally about what Israel should and should not eat. And it is about that. After all, you heard me read through it. This is what you should eat. This is what you shouldn't eat. This is what you can eat. This is what you cannot eat. However, if we were to examine the text with heightened analysis, we paid particular attention to the purpose, to the warp and woof of the text, we would discover, and we will discover, I think, that this text is fundamentally about the peculiar relationship God's people enjoy with him and the resulting peculiar life they lead. That's what Deuteronomy 14 is all about. It's about God rescuing a people for his own possession. It's about God handpicking a group of people and being in a unique relationship with that group of people and then calling them to live out of that unique relationship with him. Well, if you're taking notes, we are going to ask and answer two questions this morning. Some of you giggle. I've been terribly inconsistent lately, haven't I? Forgive me. Two questions from this text this morning. First, who? Who are we in relationship to God? Who are we in relationship to God? And this is really the foundation of Deuteronomy 14. It begins with this. In fact, it also ends with this in verse 21. And then secondly, after asking and answering the question of who, we're going to ask and answer the question of how. How should we live in light of who we are? So who are we in relationship to God and how should we live in light of who we are? We talked last Lord's Day. I want to preface this just a bit because anytime we're studying a passage like this, I mean, let's be honest. As I was reading through Deuteronomy 14, Not many of you were thinking, oh, glorious truths. Be still, my soul. The antelope. The gazelle. Right? Scales and fins. Birds of prey. What in the world are we talking about at this point? And am I in church? Well, indeed, this is the word of God. So I'm going to preface this just a bit so that we can understand, I think, how it is we ought to read these texts. And you're going to get used to me doing this all the time. Anytime I preach through the Old Testament or portions of the Old Testament, I do this a fair amount because my interest as your pastor is not simply to teach you what the Word of God says. It is that, of course. But it's also to teach you how to handle the Word of God, how to read the Word of God how to properly interpret and apply the word of God. And so let's do just a bit of that for just a moment. And then I think you'll see the logic as to why I go in the direction I go throughout the sermon. In attempting to to interpret and apply Old Testament texts, I want to argue there are two essential steps. This is kind of a mini lecture leading into the sermon. Forgive me. We should begin by reading the text in light of its preceding biblical or canonical context. That is to say, when we read Deuteronomy 14, we read it in light of everything that led up to Deuteronomy 14. 
And what that tells us is where we are once we arrive at Deuteronomy 14. We learn, for example, that we actually are on the plains of Moab and, and we're about to enter the land of Canaan, the promised land. God's promises are about to be fulfilled to a second generation of Israelites. Why a second generation of Israelites? Because the first generation of Israelites chose unbelief and foolishness and as a result, they perished in the wilderness. And so you read Deuteronomy 14 in light of its preceding biblical context, okay? Secondly, we can't stop there. Because if we stop there, we're going to preach Deuteronomy 14. We're going to interpret and apply Deuteronomy 14 as if we were those second generation Israelites on the plains of Moab about to enter the land of Canaan. And you're not. If you think you are, come see me after the service, please. Okay, that's not who you are. And so in addition to reading the text in light of its preceding biblical context, it is important that we read and interpret the text in light of its succeeding biblical context. That is to say, when we're reading Deuteronomy 14, we're also reading it in light of what follows Deuteronomy in the canon of Scripture. I'm told, by the way, I love to move. You know, I'm told that there's a spot somewhere here. I don't know where it is. Oh, there it is. I think I see it. I get distracted easy, don't I? Tracy, I don't know. What do you do? So as we read Deuteronomy chapter 14, we're reading this book also in light of Joshua. We need to know what's happening in Joshua because all of these texts build on top of one another. But more importantly, perhaps, we need to read Deuteronomy 14 in light of the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The fulfillment of all the promises of God. For in Christ, all the promises of God find their yes and amen. So that's how we're reading Deuteronomy 14. We're reading it in light of its preceding biblical context, and we're reading it, we're not stopping there, we're reading it in light of its succeeding biblical context. Finally, of course, the coming of Jesus Christ. And so the coming of Christ provides then the lens through which we interpret these Old Testament texts. Which means then, while we are going to make observations about Israel's experience, that is not our final concern. To talk about a historical or ancient Hebrew people. It is a concern of ours, but our primary concern, our fundamental concern, our final concern perhaps, is how it is God is instructing the church today through Deuteronomy 14 because this indeed is God's abiding word for his abiding people. Okay, that's all free. Every bit of that was free, Russ. All right? The rest of this, I don't know, we'll see. Well, let's begin with our first question. So keep that in mind. That's how we're reading these biblical texts. Perhaps a bit simplistic, but I think helpful. First question I told you we were going to ask of this text is who? Who are we in relationship to God? And you're going to see us do both of these things. You're going to see us talk about Israel and their context, and you're going to see us talk about us in light of the coming of Jesus Christ. Look with me at verses one and two. You are the sons of the Lord your God. This is the Old Testament. You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any boldness on your foreheads. Now, these last few words are important for many of you in this room. Some of you didn't get that. 
Don't make any boldness on your foreheads. For the dead. Those words are important here. Verse two, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God and the Lord has, notice, chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now here quickly, there are three ways that God describes his people Israel. First of all, I want you to notice that they are sons of God. And you're gonna see again, we're gonna do this toggling back and forth. Israel, and then how, of course, this gets gets read through the coming of Jesus Christ. Israel is described as a son, or in particular, in the plural, sons of God, verse one. Now, this concept of sonship is prominent in the New Testament, but you'll need to notice that it's not new to the New Testament. More times than not, what the New Testament authors are doing as they're carried along by the Spirit of God is they're providing commentary on the Old Testament. That's what the New Testament oftentimes really is. It's a commentary on the Old Testament. In fact, this is Paul's argument in Romans chapter 15. He's arguing, of course, that we're making this mystery known and this mystery that has been hidden for ages but has now been revealed, and he says, through the prophetic writings, that is, through the Old Testament. So it's always been there, but now we have the lens through which to interpret it properly. So this concept of sonship is present in the Old Testament. It is not prominent. But you do find it here in Deuteronomy. Pardon. We found it a couple of times already in Deuteronomy, and we find it here in Deuteronomy 14. We also find it in Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23, where the Lord instructs Moses, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, I'll kill your firstborn son. So Israel is described as God's son in a unique relationship to God as son. And Israel is comprised of plural sons, which is not common, actually, in the Old Testament. It may feel a bit odd if you read through the Old Testament and you come across a passage like Deuteronomy 14. Secondly, Israel, in addition to being described as sons of God, they are described as set apart for God. So they are sons of God and they're set apart for God. This is verse 2, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. This concept of holiness, we oftentimes consider it to refer to uh, moral cleanliness, as it were. Morality. And, And it does carry this connotation oftentimes in Scripture, but it's broader than this. The concept of being holy or consecrated or sanctified or set apart means just that. It means something that is set apart for service uniquely to God. And this concept appears in verse 2. It also appears again in verse 21. Israel is distinguished. They're separate for a unique purpose and service to God as sons. And then third, in addition to being sons of God and set apart for God, we find that they are selected by God. There are your three points, Pastor Rick. Got them in somehow, didn't I? They are selected by God. Verse two, the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. And so you are God's people on the basis of his selection or election. We found this in Deuteronomy chapter seven. 
And we're going to revisit each of these briefly. So these three identities that were true of Israel on the plains of Moab in Deuteronomy chapter 14 now actually come to realization through the person and work of Jesus Christ in a way that they weren't realized prior to the coming of Christ. Let's walk through these in their turn. Through faith in the only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, the New Testament promises us that we have been adopted as sons and daughters of God. Israel is referred to as God's unique son. They're in a unique relationship with God throughout the Old Testament. But they are not God's proper son. They're not God's only begotten son. I'll use an early church phrase. They're not God's eternally begotten son. There was a time when they weren't son. There is someone concerning whom there was never a time when he wasn't son in relation to the father. And that is God the son. And so this concept of sonship in the experience of Israel actually hints and points us forward to a realization that will become true when God the Son becomes human. When God the Son adds humanity to his deity while remaining truly God. And when the God-man who is properly Son lives in perfect obedience obeys when Israel failed to obey, obeys when we fail to obey. When this God-man obeys all the way up to the cross and even through the cross where he gives up his life in place of sinners, where he becomes a curse for us so that we might become blessings in him. This continues all the way into the grave where this God-man, Jesus Christ, is buried and three days later he is raised from the dead in glorious power. And don't miss this. So then what is proper to the Son of God is extended to all who will trust in him. So that now in Jesus Christ, you actually are privileged if you trust in him, you're privileged to partake of sonship in a way Israel never partook. And certainly not apart from faith. This is what we find in Galatians chapter four, verses four through seven. And we saw this during our Christmas Eve service. If you were with us, the apostle Paul writes these words, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his what? His son. He didn't become son, you see. He was already son. God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that, why? We might receive adoption as sons. Paul goes on to say, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. If a son, then an heir through God. 
So this is built into the Old Testament text, you see. Because we find that the, quote, son of God throughout the Old Testament, at least as it relates to Israel, is consistently failing. Ephesians, rather, Ephesians. Exodus chapter four, both begin with E. You weren't aware of that, now you are, see? Exodus chapter four, the passage we referenced a moment ago, verses 22 and 23, where God calls Israel his son. We find out shortly thereafter, they are disobedient sons. They're not properly sons. And we find out they're not sons by nature, they're sons by grace. But while that, and while that grace is indeed grace, that grace doesn't come to bloom until Christ comes. Because contrary to this relationship that God entered into with Israel, the relationship he enters into with us through Christ Jesus can never be broken according to Jeremiah 31. It's dependent on his persistence and his faithfulness through his son, Jesus Christ. So I ask you this morning, do you know God as your father? Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the only one who is properly the son, son by nature, son eternally, always son in relationship to the father? Have you trusted in his life of obedience, his death in your place and for your sins? Have you trusted that on the third day, God the father raised God the Son incarnate from the dead, securing your future with God forever. If that's not where you are and you have questions about that, or perhaps if you're interested maybe in becoming a Christian for the very first time, we would love to have a conversation with you. We want to invite you into the family known as the household of faith, God's family. We want to welcome you as a son or a daughter through faith in Jesus Christ. And so if that's where you are, or if you have questions, after the service, stick around and walk out of these doors just to the left. And on the right-hand side out there, there's a room called Crossroads, and there will be a pastor in there who would love to visit with you and pray with you about following the one who is properly the son. Well, if you've trusted in Christ, you're a son— through the Son, if you've trusted in Christ, you are truly set apart as well for God. Listen to what Jesus prays in John 17, 19. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now the ESV uses two different words here, but it's the same word in the Greek. For their sake, I sanctify or set apart myself so that they may be set apart or sanctified in the truth. So if you're in Christ, this reality even of Israel being set apart has come to fruition and realization for you. And we're gonna see how this manifests itself in just a moment. And then finally, God has graciously selected you. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, God has graciously selected you before the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter one, verses four through six says that the Father chose us in him, that is in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. It goes on to say, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will and to the praise of his glorious grace. 
You see, so these truths, again, don't miss this, these truths that are present in Deuteronomy chapter 14 concerning Israel really blossom through the coming of Jesus Christ and are extended now to everyone, Jew and Gentile, who trusts in Jesus Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. And that's also going to inform how we apply the instructions found throughout the rest of Deuteronomy 14. Well, so Deuteronomy 14 begins with who we are. Let's turn to ask and answer the second question. How should we live in light of who we are? And there is so much in this text, and we will not be able to get through all of the details, but hopefully we will hit the high points. And if we're late getting out, it is Pastor Brett's fault. How should we live in light of who we are? Throughout this section of Deuteronomy, God is distinguishing his people from the inhabitants of Canaan. The then neighbors of the people of Israel as they're on the plains of Moab. And he's distinguishing his people with regard to their practice and with regard to their worship. He's essentially saying time and time again, you are to be different from the Canaanites. You are to be different from your pagan neighbors You are in a relationship with me as your God, the one true and living God. You are my sons. I have selected you. You are set apart. And for these reasons, your lives ought to demonstrate that distinction. You see? That's what's happening in the context of Deuteronomy chapter 14. I want you to look at chapter 12, verse 31 with me for just a moment. Deuteronomy 12 Verse 31, and the very beginning of this verse. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every, and this is what the English Standard Version reads, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. So again, this is a way of distinguishing the practices of the Canaanites in their worship from the practices of the Israelites in their worship. But there's a particular word that's used here in verse 31 of chapter 12 that resurfaces time and time and time again. And it's oftentimes translated abomination. And it's the word toiva in Hebrew. You don't have to remember that. But you see this word reappear over and over and over again in these texts. And when this word appears, it is a way for God to distinguish the abominable practices, the toeva of the Canaanites or anyone else who's worshiping a false god from the appropriate practices of God's sons, those who are selected by God's grace and those who are set apart for his glory. And so in chapter 12, verse 31, we find this distinction between the worship practices of God's people and the toivah, the abominable practices of the Canaanites. And we're going to continue to see that throughout these chapters. And we see this in Deuteronomy chapter 14, where the practices of God's people is to be different from the practices of those who worship other gods. Notice first here that God's people are to respond to death differently than those who worship other gods. Do you see that? This is brief, early on in chapter 14. God's people are to respond to death differently than others. Look at verse 1. You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves. 
or make any boldness on your foreheads for the dead. And so grief is appropriate. We know that as we read through the text of scripture, grief grief is appropriate. Jesus himself grieved, as it were, the death of his friend, Lazarus. But there's a way to grieve. And there's a way not to grieve, you see? There is an appropriate grief for the people of God and there is a toeva, an unfaithful grief, an unfaithful response that characterizes in this case, the lives of those who worship false gods. And so I take it that those who are worshiping false gods would grieve in these ways. They would lacerate themselves, cutting themselves. They would shave off portions of their head in response to grief and the death of perhaps a loved one. As an aside, you know, we find at one place, at least at one place, I can't think of another, perhaps you can, 1 Kings 18, Elijah contesting with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And the prophets of Baal are crying out to Baal to show up and to prove he's, he's the true God, right? And what do they start doing after a while when they're not getting an answer? They start to cut themselves as if to get Baal's attention. See? This practice betrays a deficient theology. Their God is aloof. Their God is not omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, and omnibenevolent. He's a fake, a counterfeit, a phony, a charlatan. And so they try to manipulate and grab his attention. They get loud. Perhaps Baal is not listening. Perhaps he's off to do something else. You know, Elijah begins, of course, to taunt them. Elijah even says something like this. Maybe he's off relieving himself. By implication, you know, if you're relieving yourself, you can't do other things typically. I don't think it's an accident that we find this in our text. And so what God is saying to Israel is you are not to practice the to'eva, these manipulative practices and responses to grief. These demonstrations of a deficient theology because they're demonstrations of a deficient God because they aren't worshiping the one true and living God, okay? And we could, go, we could go to the New Testament here, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Many of you know this passage, verse 13, where the Apostle Paul says, we do not grieve as those who have no what? Hope. There is something for us here. Grief is appropriate for the Christian. I've not been to a funeral, even of those who don't know the Lord, where they're lacerating themselves. It's not a common practice today, but I have been to funerals where it is Hopeless. I'll never forget one particular funeral that I was asked to do, officiate. And it was in response to a tragedy. And the family, none of the family members were Christians. In fact, they had a particular religious belief. I won't give details about what that belief was, but it was, um, it was overtly non-Christian. 
And when they asked me to do the funeral, I said, you know I'm a Christian. I'm glad to. But you know I'm a, I'm a passionate follower of Jesus Christ. You know that I cannot talk about death without talking about life in Christ. And you know that I could not dare stand before you without pleading with you to come to know the God who made you and offers you redemption in Jesus Christ. You know that I think what you believe is deficient and will lead you to eternal condemnation. Do you know this about me? I love you, but I'm committed to the gospel. And they said, we know. We want you to do it anyway. We want you to do it like you would do it. I said, okay. And I'll never forget as I stood before this congregation, this gathering, and at many funerals, you know as you're talking as a pastor, as you're talking about the Lord and you're talking about the hope of eternal life in Christ Jesus, you're talking about Christ's victory over death and you're able to say, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And as, as you're doing that as a pastor, you can oftentimes tell the people that agree with you in the, in the group. And, and they're, even in the midst of mourning and, and grieving, you see hope. And I remember seeing no hope. And so I exhorted them to find their hope in Christ and in Christ alone. That they would never, never experience lasting hope apart from the God who has created them and the God who offers them redemption in Christ. But as I read through this text, it reminds me of something like that. As Christians, we grieve, but we do not grieve as people who have no hope. We know that death for the Christian is, is temporary. Additionally, not only are God's people to respond to death differently than others, God's people are to eat differently than others. And we've only got a few minutes here, but I do want to unpack a bit of this again in its context leading up to Deuteronomy 14 concerning Israel and also in light of the coming of Jesus Christ in its succeeding biblical context. But God's people here in Deuteronomy 14 are to eat differently than Others. I want you to keep in mind as we move through this that clean, these terms clean and unclean are not hygienic descriptions. That's not what these are. That's not to suggest that perhaps you wouldn't be or you wouldn't or would be healthier if you followed this dietary prescription. Maybe you would. I don't know. I'm not an expert in nutrition. I don't know. And some scholars have actually written on this and some have argued that it is more hygienic. Uh, it, it, is, it is healthier, I should say, to eat in these ways and, and not to partake in these other foods and these other animals. That may be the case, but that's not the primary thrust of the text. That's not what God is getting at here. So this is not hygienic. This is not about temporary health. This is a way of describing what is suitable for God's people and what is not suitable for God's people. It's that simple. This is a way for God to draw a line between his people and their practices. And again, don't miss this, the toeva or the abominable practices of the Canaanites. So they're to grieve differently than these people and they're to eat differently than these people. You see, I think it's really that simple. And so you find these standards, verse six, every animal that parts the hoof and has the hoof cloven in two and chews the cud. Got to have both. Among these animals, you may eat. But both were necessary. So if they chewed the cud but didn't part the hoof, or they parted the hoof but didn't chew the cud, they were proscribed, prohibited from eating these animals. 
So camels and rabbits and pigs were prohibited. Yeah. How long, O oh Lord? I'm sure they cried. I hope I've not offended anybody, but thank God for the new covenant. At times, you know, I'm cooking bacon in our own kitchen and I've said things like, thank God for the realization of the new covenant promises in Christ, right children? And they're like, what is he talking about? (laughs) It's been a while since I've done that. I need to do it again soon. According (laughs) According to verses nine and 10, if the fish had scales and fins, they could eat it. However, if it did not have both scales and fins, it was prohibited. Catfish? This is the South. No fried catfish, okay? Go and do likewise. When it came to birds, it appears, and I say it appears because it's really difficult. This language is challenging. The English Standard Version, this is a fun exercise. You could take the English Standard Version and other English translations and compare how they've made these translational decisions with reference to the animals that are mentioned, especially the birds, and you find it all over the place. It's difficult to know what these animals, what these terms refer to, or the animals to which these terms refer but it appears that birds of prey and scavengers were generally prohibited. I want you to notice, and we're skipping a bit here, but I want you to notice verse 21, just because as you're reading through Deuteronomy 14, you get to verse 21 and you wonder what just happened. Verse 21, let's read that again together, just so that we can together become confused. You shall not eat anything that has died naturally. You may give it to the sojourner who is within your towns that he may eat it. (laughs) You're going to make me chase a rabbit here. No pun intended. Or you may sell it to a foreigner for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. There's a distinction, okay? It's, by the way, it's not as if these foods could not be consumed, but not for God's people in covenant with God. And then notice, do you see this? By the way, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And I, I got to tell you, you know, I've studied this and I don't have the foggiest idea. I mean, you know, I do know that I think that again, there is choeva. There, is, there are these abominable practices that are exercised and practiced among the Canaanites and, and the, the neighboring groups, the pagans who don't worship the Lord God of heaven and earth who worship false gods. And I know that God is making a clear distinction between his people's practices because of his people's identity and the practices of others who don't know him. And so I can only assume that this was a practice in the ancient land of Canaan. But we don't have evidence for that outside of this, if if this indeed is evidence that they were actually doing this. And some challenge that, I don't know. Um, But if you're an Israelite, don't do it. It's that simple. You may have wanted more from me on explaining this, but I think it's as simple as that was toiva. It was an abomination. Now why? Why are some animals considered clean and others unclean? Many theories abound. 
What we can confidently say is that some were appropriate and others inappropriate for God's people because God in his infinite wisdom said they were. I really think it's that simple. I do. And, and God's word doesn't give us the internal logic as to why God made some of these decisions. All it tells us is that these are toeva, or these are unclean for you. You are not to partake of these things. You are to partake of these other things. God is making a distinction, don't miss this, between his selected, set-apart sons and others who don't know him. And consistently, this is the case throughout Scripture. How about us as followers of Jesus? Now, we're going to take the last few moments that Brett stole. I'm really getting some mileage out of that one, Brett. And we're going to walk through just some practical ways that if we read this text as followers of Christ in light of its succeeding biblical context, the coming of Christ, I think we can understand how it is that God is instructing us this morning. And when we do that, we find out that we don't practice these instructions in the same ways the Israelites were to practice them. Mark chapter seven, you can write these down if you take notes. We're not gonna go through these in detail, but Mark chapter seven, verses 14 through 23 is a telling passage. And this is where Jesus is having a conversation with a group of people regarding what defiles a person. And Jesus makes the comment that it's not what is outside of a person that enters the person and then defiles the person. In other words, it's not what you eat that actually defiles you. Jesus says what defiles you are the things that come out of you. Because they were already in you. And in this context, and we're not going to go into detail here, but in the context, Mark observes in verse 19, Mark 7 verse 19, thus Jesus declared all foods clean. Glory to God. Additionally, I'll mention another text to you. Peter has a vision. Goes into a kind of trance in Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 16. He actually recalls this and tells about this trance in chapter 11, verses 7 through 9, where he begins to explain his understanding of what was taking place. But in this experience with the apostle Peter, there is a gathering of unclean animals that are descending on a sheet. You remember this if you've read through Acts? And so there's a sheet and there are unclean animals of all kinds. And here they come, descending in front of Peter. And Peter hears a voice that says, rise, kill, and eat. And what's Peter's response? Absolutely not. I've never eaten anything that's unclean. And the voice corrects Peter. The voice says what God has called clean, you shall not call unclean. You see, there's this transition happening through the coming of Jesus Christ. And the transition, you need to understand this, I think theologically and biblically, the transition is taking place because the promises given to Abraham that through him and through his seed, all the nations, all the families of the earth will be blessed is coming to fruition and fulfillment. What God is doing 
God is no longer focusing his redemptive activity on a particular culture, but all cultures. See? Such that in the book of Revelation, we find that there are people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue singing before the lamb who was slain. Israelites, indeed. And Canaanites who trust in Jesus Christ. That's what's happening. And this was his purpose all along. What did he tell Israel, even throughout Isaiah? I have chosen you to be a light to the nations. In fact, they're rebuked for failing to be a light for the nations. Of course, we know now that a better Israel was coming. An Israelite, as it were, in whom there was no deceit and no sin because he was and remains truly God and truly human in one person. Jesus Christ came and fulfilled all of these promises so that everyone, Jew and Gentile, who trusts in him now receive his blessing. That's what's happening. These things are being universalized. So it's no longer a question of should I eat bacon or not? You're welcome not to eat bacon. And if it's because of biblical conviction you don't eat bacon, glory to God, that's fine. I think that fits within the context of something like Romans 14. Do it unto the Lord. Whatever is not done of faith is sin. So some of you will not eat bacon for the glory of Christ, God bless you. Others of you will eat bacon for the glory of Christ. God bless you. As these promises have become universalized, so we see the restrictions expanding, as it were, to blessings to all nations. So, rather than being known by the foods we eat or don't eat, we are to be known primarily by faithfulness, purity, Holiness, obedience, love. First Peter chapter 1, verse 15, Peter writes, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Now referencing Leviticus there, but also very similar in thrust to Deuteronomy 14. The God you worship is holy. The God who has selected you and set you apart as his sons and daughters. He's holy as a result. Be holy, which distinguishes you from those who don't yet know the living God. There must be a very clear distinction between the people who belong to Jesus Christ and the people who don't. And as an aside, that is why I am excited about this cultural moment. I know we are in a difficult season. I know that. I mean, my goodness, how many members do we have on a week-to-week basis of someone's sick and others are sick and they may have COVID, they may not have COVID. Everybody's wondering. You know, I come up here to preach and I feel like I cough 1,400 times before I walk up the steps because I don't want to cough up here and mortify the rest of you. It's an odd season, isn't it? Politically, our country has been torn apart. 
And people are functioning. I've heard this, I read this recently. People are functioning, I am included, not on the basis of reasoned argumentation, but on the basis of outrage. Outrage is what has convinced us now. What an opportunity for the church. You exist by God's grace in Christ for such a moment as this. It's no accident. God's not in heaven, as it were, thinking, you know what, I didn't see that coming, COVID. What was that? And the political turmoil, what am I going to do? I mean, after all, if America falls, God's purposes surely fail, right? You know better, don't you, Christians? And this is why I'm optimistic, because the Spirit of God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells among us. Amen. Because we have the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Because we actually have the words that can raise the dead. Because there is a world that is more and more experiencing hopelessness. And that is because they have set their hope on something that can never satisfy. But you have the answer for that. For that vacuum, that chasm, that gap that exists in their soul. And the answer is Christ. And so I am excited about this cultural moment. And I'm optimistic about the church because I actually believe the words of Christ. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it and what that will do is it will accentuate and highlight the distinction between those who know the Lord and those who don't and when that distinction is apparent and more apparent it is an opportunity for the church we look peculiar in seasons like this or we should. We look weird, odd during seasons like this. And so this will give us opportunity to live in such a way that reflects our relationship with God, to live in such a way that distinguishes us from our unbelieving neighbors. This may or may not manifest in the foods you eat, but it should manifest in the way you eat. And how you eat, I was thinking about that just this week. I thought, you know, we pull through these fast food areas and we, we order food because we view, <clears throat> pardon, food as if it were merely for practical purposes. I just need some sustenance to get to the next event. But in scripture, food is an instrument of community and love and communion. <clears throat> so the church has the opportunity to partake of food in a way that gives glory to God to gather around a table and to pray to the God who provides food every day for us because we didn't earn this. He's given it to us out of his grace and mercy. This means that the way you approach your work is different than the way your unbelieving coworker approaches work. Your unbelieving coworker approaches work because they have to oftentimes. Maybe they want to, but that's rare. They have to. They have bills to pay. But you know better than this, Christian, don't you? You know that you're working as unto the Lord, for it is the Lord Christ whom you serve, according to Colossians chapter three. 
You know that you don't have to become a pastor in order to worship God by means of your occupation. And if you didn't know that, now you do. And so you approach work as a follower of Jesus Christ and this distinguishes you from the world around you. The way you approach social media is different than the way your unbelieving neighbors approach social media. And if it's not, it should be. Your posts should be consistent with the character of your heavenly father. As the apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter four, verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths or through your smartphone. Paul said it, I didn't. But only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear the world needs less heat and more light. So be light, Christians. Be light, church. If you have a boyfriend, you have a girlfriend, you approach this relationship differently in Christ Jesus than your unbelieving neighbors would approach these kinds of relationships. If you are married, you approach this relationship differently than your unbelieving neighbors approach their relationship in marriage. You know that this relationship belongs exclusively to God. And you know that it's through this relationship you are called to honor the Lord your God who has purchased you by means of Christ. If you are single, you employ your singleness for the glory of Christ in a way that distinguishes you from your single and unbelieving neighbors. I need to wrap up, I know. But I want to tell you a brief story. And then we'll wrap up with perhaps a brief story as well. The other day I was sitting at Kroger and I could give you, I could give you lists of ways that I fail to submit to the spirit of God, but I'm very thankful there are those moments when God's grace is apparent in my life. I, it causes my heart to rejoice, not in what I'm doing, but in what he's doing in and through me. And the other day I had one of those moments and I'm just eager to share it with you. At Kroger, they were going through a lot. They had a lot going on, and I'd, I, I sat out front in the car, and uh, Tana had done a click list. Am I saying that correctly? A click list. <clears throat> if I'm not, then indulge me. And uh, so Kroger was preparing the groceries. And anyway, long story short, they had fallen on help, uh, short on help, short on employees. And I sat out there, I don't know, it was about an hour waiting. And ev- I mean, every spot is filled. I had to wait to get in to get to a spot for the click list. And after about an hour, this, this young man walks up sheepishly. And I mean, if he had a tail, it would have been between his legs. And he walks up to my window and he says, sir, I'm so sorry to tell you we are not going to be able to fulfill your order tonight. And I'd watched him. He was, he was walking to every single vehicle out there. I mean, so every car. <clears throat> now, don't, please don't misunderstand me. There are times when I don't respond well, okay? Follow me around for the next 15 minutes. And you'll have opportunity to see that. But in God's mercy, I had the privilege of watching him walk to these other cars as he was walking up to me, before walking up to me, came up to me, and I, and I knew, I had an idea of what he was about to tell me. And I thought to myself, I'm in Deuteronomy 14. How can my response 
distinguish me as a follower of Jesus Christ when this young man walks up to me. And immediately I said to him, I am so sorry you guys are going through this. This has got to have been a hard day. And he said, and it just, I mean, he opens up. And he says, the worst day of my life. And I said, can I pray for you? And I had the joy of praying. And you better believe I prayed the gospel. I had the joy of praying to the Lord on his behalf and praying through the gospel, of course, so that he could hear the gospel. And he was overwhelmed after that conversation. And I left at that point. I I went inside and did some shopping. Uh, Saw Amy there, I think, as I was shopping. She was shopping there as well. And uh, I think I was there for another seven hours shopping because I'm no good at it. (laughs) So when I got home about three in the morning, (laughs) slight exaggeration. But as I drove home, I I just felt overwhelmed, not by anything I had done, but by the grace of the Lord working through me to distinguish me as a selected and set-apart son of God. And what a privilege, what a privilege that was. Well, that was longer than I thought. We should close in prayer. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, that's our desire, not because we are good enough not because we have anything to offer you, not because we have the strength or the equipment in ourselves, not because there is anything intrinsically good within us, but because of your grace, on account of your mercy, and by virtue of Christ's obedience applied to us and within us by the Spirit, we desire to bring you glory. And we desire to live as selected and set apart sons and daughters of yours. Oh God, do a work in us at First Baptist Powell. Do a work in Powell, Tennessee and in East Tennessee. Would you do a work of revival? And would you give us the joy of being instruments in that work? as the watching world sees a people who are peculiar. And then perhaps, by the power of your spirit, many of them come to know you because and through that peculiarity. Do this for your glory and the good of your people. We pray these things in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen.